If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Friday. Set participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The plague when it hits Walsham in in Easter, just after Easter 1349, is probably at its most extensive. That was John Hatcher on location in a village that was ravaged by the Black Death. Sir Hugh Willoughby wrote in his log, which was recovered afterwards, that the land lay not as the globe made mention, because he was working with a globe which simply bore no relation to the land as he saw it. And that was James Evans on a tale of 16th century exploration. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. And for those of you with a Kindle Fire, I should mention that that edition is now available in the United States as well. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Now at the moment, we're running a very special Christmas offer where you can purchase any digital edition of the magazine for just 99 pence or the equivalent in your currency on the iPad, the Kindle Fire or Google Play. 
Look out for BBC History magazine at the newsstand or app store to take advantage of this deal, which begins tomorrow and runs until the 1st of January. So this is our last podcast of 2013. I hope you all had a good Christmas and are in the mood for some fascinating slices of history to accompany your turkey sandwiches. First up this week, we're heading to the Suffolk village of Walsham Le Willows, which lost half its population to the Black Death in the 14th century. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, joined Professor John Hatcher at Walsham Le Willows to explore how this terrible disease shaped the village and the wider country as well. Right, so um, John, we're, um, we're looking at the court roll for Walsham Le Willows um, for the 15th of June... 1349. Um, just, we're going to talk about that, but what actually the information contained. But can you just tell us what, what actually it was a court role? What did it, what did it, what's it telling us? Well, each uh, Lord Lady of the Manor would hold a court which would be used uh, to administer the, the manor that they owned mm-hmm. and really had two sets of, of business. One, which is the, the Lord or Lady of the Manor, enforcing their rights yeah. to collect fines, to uh, discipline people and maintain, maintain order and secure their income. And the other aspect of it is the community itself needing to regulate farming. So make sure that people keep their animals under control, don't mm. let them trespass. Uh, also advantage for the peasants themselves of having a record of their holdings of land yeah. and their obligations and so on. So, and these courts are held during the year, on average, about once a month, I think, across the country, but it varies from uh, area to area, sometimes held more frequently if there's a lot of business. Yeah. And uh, they, they exist in very large numbers all across the, the country, from manor after manor. So there's, there's literally thousands of them in existence still. So it really was just a record of, of, of that, what was going on at that yes. session. Yes. Um, and you've, you've selected this, um, this role to look at in particular. Why, what, what's so special about this one? Um, well, it's the size of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it records, it's the first court to be held after the arrival of the Black Death in, in Walsham. The village of Walsham has uh, actually, uh, there are three manors in it one very small, but two manors have left court records. Okay. So the great advantage of Walsham over other other villages for the history of the Black Death being recorded is that both of these courts have continuous records, mm-hmm. not only right through the period of the Black Death, but actually for a few years before the Black Death, and a year or so afterwards, complete records, which means we can date the arrival of the Black Death very precisely and also when it left the village. And this court is for the manor of of Walsham. The other manor in the village is High Hall, the manor of Walsham. And it's the first court held after the plague has struck and it lists 103 deaths occurring uh, among the tenants of the manor. Uh, and do we know in what period of time that would have been? So when was the, when was the, um, the court before then? 
Well, the court before then is is the sixth of March, okay. thirteen forty nine, and there are no, there are no unusual deaths. I'm not even sure there's a single death. Uh, deaths are always recorded in the court rolls. The deaths of tenants. Okay. So there's nothing unusual in the court of the sixth of March, thirteen forty nine, and we know the plague uh, hasn't struck the village at that date. There's a court for High Hall, which is the, the other manor which is recorded in, in Walsham, in, on the 25th of May. Mm -hmm. And that has exceptional numbers of, of yeah. deaths. But probably the epidemic hadn't peaked by the 25th of May, but we know that it's, it's in the village okay. well before the 25th of May. And then we have the 15th. 15th of June court roll, which is this one here before yeah. us of, of extraordinary length. I mean, it's, the, I mean, it's <laughs> an astonishing document, just looking at it, if you sort of unravel it, it's probably over a metre, isn't it, I would say, oh, yeah, in, well over, in well over a metre in length. Yes. Yeah, they sign it, you can see where they sewed on an extra membrane. Yeah. Uh, these, and are, these are the court records, yeah. uh, which don't fill up the membrane because they write them one after the other. Yeah. But this single court, uh, the, the clerk had to sew an extra membrane on because there's so much names. business yeah. going on. And then we can date the cessation of the plague as well because of the continuousness of the records. So the next High Hall Court is the 23rd of July, mm. which has a large number of deaths because the previous uh, court for High Hall was at the end of May, so you've got all the people who died after the end of May. Okay. And then there's a Walsham Court of the 1st of August with uh, only five, five new records of deaths. Yeah. So between the, the June Court and the August Court, only five people died, and possibly they didn't all die afterwards. They may have already been dead but just yeah. didn't appear in the court because so that's about eight weeks then eight yeah nine so weeks. last eight or nine weeks because that, that's quite surprising i mean i think yeah. i've always thought i think lots of people always thought that it it could stay in a village or a town for for some months before it kind of died out well in a town the it's clear it does stay longer mm. i think having much larger population so in london it's it's four four or five months yeah uh, with with lulls in between it's just the size of the uh, of the community but the vast majority of the population of england are living in villages of the size of walsham a little bit bigger most of them a, a bit smaller so we can say that in the places that it visited the, the hundreds and hundreds of villages it visits mm. it stayed no longer than eight nine nine weeks at most and yet managed to wipe out, was it, yes. half the population yeah. of that? But in Walsham, mm. it's, it's slightly over 50, yeah. 50%, so it's more than one in two of the population in that period. So were, period. were um, the families of tenants also listed on here? So anybody in that village who had died, or who came under that manor, who had died in that period would be no. listed on here? No. So these are just, so we don't know about... No, it's a record of, of land holding, so mm. that this is why it's only... The tenants, the other people who are mentioned in the in the court with associated with that death would be the heir. Right. So that the the court records the death. It extracts uh, what's called a heriot, which is a death duty on okay. the estate 
of the the person who's just died mm. and then the jurors of the village would have uh, made inquiries to find out who was in line to inherit that and uh, we see in the in this court uh, in case after case after case where the heirs are much more distant sometimes they they can't find an heir mm. or the heir is is much more distant than the normal father to son inheritance that you get in the relatively settled period before yeah. the black death uh, father son with widow being yeah. provided and of course you then get a large numbers of deaths occurring within the same family yeah. so there's an, a considerable increase in the number of women inheriting yeah. because women inherited only if there were no male heirs so um, and do we notice that more during this this the period yes. when the black death oh absolutely and, and how usual was it for these courts to be held du during this period of when the disease was sort of sweeping the country um, we've got this court being held right in the middle of, you know, you know, well, the, in the middle of it. Yeah, the remarkable one is is the the court held at, at High Hall. Actually, the mm. the Walsham court is held towards the end. I think the plague is fading rapidly in, yeah. by the end of end of end of end of June. But the Walsham, the uh, sorry, the High Hall court which is held on the 25th of May, yeah. is close probably to the, the yeah. peak of the epidemic. Well, I think why it's held, the Lord of the Manor himself doesn't hold the court. He brings in a parson oh, okay. from a neighbouring <laughs> so village to, <laughs> yeah. to hold it. But I, th I think that the, the lords are just terrified that they're losing control of what's going on. Yeah. Because in each year, uh, even with a large manor, you might have three or four tenants dying. Everything's controlled. Yeah. Uh, hundred deaths, or on a small manor like High Hall, mm. twenty or thirty deaths. So he's he's desperate to secure heirs to get people on the land paying their rents. Uh, so they they hold courts. But although again, Walsham is unusual. I think one. Mm. Why there's a shortage of records um, for the period of the Black Death itself is firstly because the the Reeve, the Lord, the Clerk of Court would die, right. <laughs> and therefore there was nobody to, to record prepare the record. And then the the other reason is that uh, they didn't want to, to hold a court or people wouldn't attend the court because a lot of the medical advice at the time, a fair amount of it was, was quite reasonable but very basic, which is just keep away from yeah. other people during an epidemic like this. So, um, so sitting in um, St Mary's Church in Walsham and Willows now, um, which would be probably, I'd imagine, one of the, the focal points of the village um, at this at this point and um, what did um, the village look like on the eve of the black death before you know what the population and what were people like well the population is high there's been a long period of population growth which stretched back before the norman conquest mm. uh, possibly to the the 800s and the village had, had grown and was probably uh, two and a half times the size that it had been in in the year a thousand and the majority of people in the village would have been poor. Uh, 
the early 14th century, some really appalling famines when the harvests fail for three years in succession. So it's a, a village that is on the edge of uh, subsistence, although there are some richer people in the village, of course, mm. overpopulated. And therefore the Black Death, in a, a cold economic sense, brings immediate prosperity to the survivors because the population has been halved, mm. land is more easily available, uh, cheap, rents fall, people inherit land who'd previously been landless. Uh, the balance of power between the landlord and the population of the manor has shifted because now uh, workers are in demand mm -hmm. and they're paid higher wages. So the Black Death itself, in that sense, does bring about a great improvement in the condition of the survivors, mm. but of course bought at a very, very high price yeah. of um, these phenomenal death rates. So if you survived, if you're lucky enough to survive, you found yourself in a much better position, really. I mean, yes. well, economically speaking. Yes. Um, but the, what's often not realised, because the Black Death is so spectacular, is that the plague keeps coming back. Mm. It comes back in 1361, 62, 1369, 1375. Right. So it's uh, the nature of the diseases. Once it becomes uh, endemic, it uh, has repeated outbreaks. And this keeps the population down for really through to the early 16th century. And, and were, were those um, later outbreaks, were they as sort of devastating to the population um, as, as that first one in, in, in the... No, but if they'd have occurred by themselves, they would have been mm. uh, remembered and, and famous yeah. and causing death rates. Because it is that first one that we yeah, remember, 15 isn't it? 15%, uh, 20% in some places, 12%. These are very high death rates, but of course the Black Death with yeah. an average across the whole of Europe in excess of 40% yeah. is just so spectacular. And, and just the disease itself, do we know for certain where, where it came from, what, what it actually was? Because there's been quite a lot of debate, hasn't there, over yes. you know, the years? Yeah, well, in this case, uh, there's been scientific proof very recently uh, using uh, burial pits of the, of the uh, Black Death of the mid-14th century. And DNA, advances in DNA, enabling very robust samples to be obtained from, particularly from teeth, dental pulp. There's also a, now a rapid diagnostic test, a swab that, that can show up the antigens which are unique to uh, plague. And it definitely was uh, bubonic plague, which is what was thought in the 19th century, but over the last 30 years, increasingly medical opinion has been against bubonic plague because it is really a very mechanical disease. It mm. depends upon each victim being bitten by what was thought to be an infected flea. We now know that it was probably body lice as yeah. well, but each individual who contracts the disease has to be uh, bitten by an insect apart from pneumonic plague, but that is often thought not to have played a great part in the, in the outbreak. We've got conclusive proof that it was bubonic plague, which raises all sorts of problems as to how it managed to spread so yeah. comprehensively across Europe and, and kill so many people and do it 
in the space of, of, of seven years. And what do we know about the first cases in this, in this particular village? We've already, you know, the records for this village are very good. Um, do we know anything about those first people? No, it's, uh, we know almost the precise date, which is, is just after Easter, mm-hmm. 1349. And in fact, the plague at that time, when it's hitting Walsham, it's probably at its most extensive across Europe. The whole uh, the plague when it hits Walsham in, in Easter, th- just after Easter, 1349, is probably at its most extensive. It's across the whole of uh, central England from, from east to west. Mm-hmm. And what were people's reactions um, in, in this particular village? Do we know, did they t- turn to the church and, you know, did people, I mean, because I know on the continent um, reactions were quite a lot more, were a lot strong, seemed to be a lot stronger. Yes. Um, what, what are the comparisons there? Well, we don't really have the records in the village about that, that give us that information. Mm. We, we can use other records. I think what, what happens immediately is that although faith may have been shaken uh, and questions asked and God viewed in, in different terms really as rather an angry God rather mm. than a an Abraham figure welcoming yeah. people into his bosom. But the effect of the, the plague, and in fact later outbreaks of plague, is to strengthen people's commitment to, to organised religion. Mm. They want to play a larger part in it for themselves. They demand sermons. They hire priests in parish guilds. They want a more personal religion. But the religion doesn't alter very much. And in fact, it becomes rather obsessive with the, the afterlife, the risk of dying with a great weight of sin on one's soul, uh, spending long time in purgatory for these sins to be purged. So the setting up of chapels the, uh, for masses to be said for the dead. Yeah. So a lot of resources of the living are devoted to the church in order to say masses for the souls of one's parents mm. uh, and also, of course, to prepare one for death and to leave lasting memorials in chapels that uh, will lead, if you're rich enough, to prayers being said for your soul after your death. And it's been called by some historians as a, a cult of the living, uh, devoted to death. Yeah. And it, it, it does become, uh, in the eyes of a, of a lot of church historians, uh, too obsessive. Yeah. But this, I think, is being driven by the people themselves rather than the church. Okay. I mean, your book is a real sense of the, the ceremony and the kind of um, around someone's death, you know, people gathering, neighbours gathering around the bed, the, the priest doing the last rites and, you know, absolving them of their sins. How did that, what happened when there were, you know, you were saying at one point there were sort of 60 people per day at the peak dying per day. Mm. You have one priest in this village. How, what did people do? Well, there are, there are probably more than the one priest, uh, two or three, but the priests mm. also are, are dying. Yeah, of course. And at the peak of the epidemic, or even well before then, uh, because for everybody dying, you've got an, uh, uh, twice as many on their sick beds yes. uh, uh, asking for, for priests. I, the system collapses. Yeah. 
Mm. It, it's absolutely impossible for not only good deaths, which is a very lengthy, lengthy business, taking the time of the, the priest for, mm. for an hour, maybe two hours, a gathering of neighbours in, in the ideal circumstances, which was certainly happening before the plague, um, but the, also the, the conducting of, of the funeral service, the full Christian burial, mm. which um, collapses at this time. We know this from, from English chroniclers, but particularly Italian chroniclers, the, the hurried burials, the large numbers of uh, people dying without a priest, but not only without a priest, without neighbours or without their mm. family who have deserted them for fear of the plague. So it's an incredibly traumatic experience because, as you said, the having a good death and an appropriate funeral is so vital mm. in the passage of the soul. Yeah. But the, the church responds as well as it can. The evidence we have suggests that priests are very diligent. But also, when the plague starts in... Uh, the church becomes aware of the scale of the... Uh, onslaught that it faces the, the Pope at a very early stage uh, permits the confession of, uh, of the dying to laymen and laywomen women as well right uh, yeah. in order to give some comfort to the dying and in terms of burial um, with the, I mean, the church we're in today I mean the, the graveyard mm. um, we know that the village is half the population of the village died yes. so some 750 people are buried were buried in this um, yes. but not in individual graves i assume at, the, at its peak no i think not uh, the excavations that have taken of black death burials tend to see them you tend to see rather orderly burials but the digging of very large uh, graves and bodies laid side by side mm. And there's an Italian chronicler who, who writes in rather uh, a bit of black humour. He says that the graves were like uh, lasagna. You'd have a layer of meat and then you'd put a layer of pasta, which would be the soil over yeah. the top, and then you'd have another layer of meat. Gosh. He said just like making pasta. Yeah. And, of course, this, this would be essential in order to be able to bury the bodies on consecrated ground which is so important you can't uh, a full Christian burial requires consecrated ground and the just overwhelming numbers of deaths yeah. uh, but the they weren't too concerned in the in the Middle Ages about digging up the bones of people who died sometime before so I think a lot of that is going on yeah. in order to make space for new burials the bones are being dug up and piled against the uh, the wall of the churchyard, and uh, as I say, the in larger towns, there's a lot of evidence of of chaos. I suspect in village, it, the village, it was less chaotic. But in towns, you do hear of bodies being being dumped by the, mm. the roadside, thrown out of windows, yeah. uh, and uh, people having to pay vast sums of money to what they term ruffians and. Uh, yeah. crude folk to take their loved ones off for burial and then they wouldn't take them to burial. It's a bit like uh, 
dumping waste now. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> they cart them off and then tip them over yeah, a hedge into a, into a field. And, I mean, some historians have argued that um, medieval chroniclers have maybe exaggerated some, um, some diseases and things like that. Um, do you think that's been the case with the Black Death, or do you think it really was as, as mm. horrific as, as we think it was? Yeah, I think, if anything, the, the majority of the chroniclers are rather low-key, because by the time the plague arrived in the place where they were observing it, they were already aware when it spreads across mm. Europe. They'd heard stories of what had happened in Constantinople or what had happened in Kaffa yeah. or places on the way. Uh, it, what is very interesting is that it used to be thought that the, the Black Death killed about 30% or a third of the population. That's what I was always taught at school, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was then considered to be an exaggeration because yeah. we know chroniclers exaggerate. And sometimes they do get their figures wildly wrong if they say 200,000 people died in Florence when historians know that there weren't 100,000 yeah. <laughs> people in Florence. But, in fact, the more scientific the study of the available sources has been the death rate has, has tended to be pushed up right. rather than down, and it's now uh, universally accepted that the, the death rate was, was well over a third. And in fact, the majority of expert opinion would place it at 40 45%. Oh. And did people, did um, villages and towns find that some people were, had the attitude that, you know, well, if I'm going to die, I don't want to spend my last days working in your field. Yes. You know, yes. toiling away yes. and then sort of, you know, did, did there, was there that, that sort of attitude? Yeah, I think there's a, it, it's best expressed, I think, in uh, Boccaccio, who, yeah. who talks about human nature, how some people uh, do all they can to avoid uh, God's punishment by behaving as as chastely and as, mm. as prudently and as spiritually uh, orthodox as possible, whereas others give up <laughs> See, <they could laughs> and say, "Well, if we're going to die, let's make the most." That's a of... bit of fun. For. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Do you think um, Walsham can be seen as a like a microcosm for what was going on in the in England as a whole? Yes. Um, is, is it? Uh, Fair to look at it like that. I think it is. The Walsham's exceptional for the quality of its records. It's mm. not exceptional for its experience. So it is kind of a typical. Yes, it is. Okay. So the death rate varies from village to village, but broadly uh, within the range of twenty-five percent to seventy-five percent. But the great majority of villages that we we have evidence of the number. The rate of death um, is is of the order of uh, forty to fifty fifty mm. percent. So I think Walsham is there'll be hundreds of villages in in Wiltshire, in Somerset, yeah. in Suffolk, in okay. Essex, which are experiencing very similar very similar uh, fortunes to or misfortunes to Walsham. That was Professor John Hatcher on location in Walsham Loyalows. John has written a piece about the Black Death for our Christmas issue, which is on sale now. Also in the issue, we're discussing the Celts, Stonehenge, the Second World War Arctic convoys, Tudor animals and much, much more. You can still get hold of a copy in all good newsagents and digitally.
Before our second interview, here's a reminder of our next BBC History magazine events. On the 15th and 16th of March next year, we're holding two-day events at Bristol's M-Shed. On Saturday the 15th, it's our Vikings Day, and then on Sunday the 16th, we're holding a First World War Day. On both occasions, you'll get a chance to hear talks from a range of experts, and you'll also enjoy a buffet lunch on each day. For more information and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events, and we hope to see lots of you there. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Earlier this year, a Chinese container ship arrived in Rotterdam having travelled along the Northeast Passage, that is, traversing the northern shores of Russia to arrive in Europe. The journey time was just 35 days, as opposed to 48 for the traditional Suez Canal route. This is not, however, the first time that people have attempted this shortcut to the east. Back in 1553, three ships departed England, seeking to find the Northeast Passage and travel that way to Asia. Their remarkable story is told by James Evans in his recent book, Merchant Adventurers. I spoke to James a couple of weeks back to find out what happened to these brave Tudor explorers and began by asking him how he first became interested in this story. Well, I mean, I, I work in, in television as well as, as being a writer. So I was doing, I was producing a, a big documentary series by um, a historian who's probably narrowly better known than me, um, Neil Ferguson, who he was doing a, a series about Western civilization and basically looking at the reasons why Western civilization had been for a time preeminent in the sense, you know, much more successful than other regions of the world. And what he wanted to do was to draw the contrast between some voyages which set out from China in the early 15th century, um, led by Admiral Zheng He, and the slightly later voyages of trade and exploration, which set out from Europe. And I think we were looking for a you know, one single European voyage, which would make a suitable contrast. Uh, and it was then, I think, that I first read about the, the great English voyage of 1553. And, you know, was completely, you know, taken taken aback that I'd, that I'd not read about it before and, and thought I should have done. And so in this voyage, they were looking for the North East Passage. And I've heard quite a bit about the North West Passage, but um, far less about the North East one. Could you just explain what exactly that was or is? Yes, well, what they hoped was that um, if they travelled north, northeast, and basically went up the western coast of Norway and rounded the top of Scandinavia, that they would 
they would sail past, as indeed they did sail past, a, a North Cape, a, a, a version of the Cape that was rounded at the bottom of Africa. And that after that, the coastline along the top of Asia would descend gradually um, into you know much warmer climates and easier waters. And that by that route, they could gradually work their way down towards China and Cath you know, Cathay, as it was known, and these rich lands that they read so much about and that they desperately wanted to reach. Didn't quite work out that way, but yeah, that's what they hoped. So in a sense, they were, they were doing similar to what people like Columbus had been trying to do in the other direction, to find a better route to the east. Precisely, precisely. That's what they, what they, what they wanted to get. You know, what, where they wanted to go was was the China, was China, Cathay, as it was known, and the Spice Islands. You know, they'd read they'd read huge amounts um, in accounts by people like Marco Polo, who'd written you know many many years ago about the wealth that was to be found in the East. And you know, not so long ago, Spain and Portugal had discovered great wealth by travelling both west and east. And the English were very aware that, you know, they lived on a northerly island, and if there was a passage in the north, either northwest or northeast, by which they could reach China, that it would be enormously lucrative, um, and that was what they tried. That was what they hoped to do, and that was what they tried to do in 1553. So, so who were the people that set off on this voyage? Well, the overall captain of the expedition was a gentleman soldier by the name of Sir Hugh Willoughby, who, I mean, he's known to have led. Privateering voyages in in the wars against France and Scotland, um, but as far as is known, he didn't particularly have any expertise as a navigator. However, his second in command, his grand pilot, or, or you know his chief pilot as it was known, was a young man from Bristol called Richard Chancellor, and he very differently was a genuinely new you know a, a man in a, in a new in an entirely new mould. He was. Um, he was both a sailor, a practical sailor, but he was also a mathematician. He was an astronomer. He made his own instruments. And, and this was the first time, really, that England had seen anyone like him um, be put in charge of a voyage of this kind. And all of those who came after him, you know, Sir Francis Drake, Humphrey Gilbert and so on, you know, the much better known people, much better known explorers, owed a huge amount to him because it was Richard Chancellor who came first. What were these people, obviously there was, there was a wider goal, but what were they personally hoping to gain from this voyage? Well, wealth, certainly. I mean, you know, if they were able to get through to, to Cathay, to the Spice Islands, then, you know, people didn't need to be told how rich people in Spain and Portugal had become through finding new lands across the ocean. Um they were hoping for renown as well, of course. I mean, they would go down, as they well knew, in the annals of exploration. Um, it would be a venture which would change the history of England forever. Um, so, so yes, they hoped for, for, for all of these things. And, of course, they hoped for... I mean, there was a genuine sense that, you know, you read time and time again in the history of the, the English and then the British Empire that England was, an, was in a sense, fulfilling a divine plan, that it was meant to meant to make its way towards you know, great great riches, great renown in the world. And what they were doing was simply acting on this, that there must therefore be a northern passage which was peculiarly suitable for England to reach distant lands and to reach the wealth that seemed its lot. What kind of maps or charts did they have to guide them in their way? Did they have anything like that at all? Well, they had maps of Europe. Uh, as soon as they started venturing north, their maps became extremely unreliable. Um, I mean, in this, in the course of this great exploration, the, the three ships were separated in a storm, and 
two of those ships were were left floundering, not knowing exactly where they were. And um, Sir Hugh Willoughby wrote in his log, which was recovered afterwards, that the land lay not as the globe made mention, because he was working with a globe which simply bore no relation to the land as he saw it. Um, and of course, he was entirely right. The, the land didn't lie as the globe made mention. Um, so it was an incredibly difficult thing to, you know, difficult thing to do. Looking back at it now, do you think they were insufficiently prepared for this kind of voyage? I think they were probably as well prepared as they could have been. I mean, enormous effort had been met, had been taken to provide you know the ships with 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 food with everything that they could be provided for the ships had been newly built because um sebastian cabot rightly realized that many many older ships that were used for trading in europe um, had fallen into disrepair and were dangerous one of the ships indeed had been lined with lead because he knew well enough and he'd worked for a long time in spain where voyages were were mounted which went across to the caribbean the damage that could be done by warm water were you know there was a worm called the torido shipworm it wasn't actually a worm at all but um that's what it was known as and it could eat through the you know the woods the timber th- from which ships were built and do enormous damage and of course what they hoped was that they would themselves reach you know warm waters in the pacific um and so one of the ships was lined with lead as a kind of precaution against against precisely this danger. As it turns out, of course, there was absolutely no reason for it to be lined with lead because they remained in cold water. Um, and the Torito shipworm would have been presented no threat at all. But it, it, it's an illustration of the lengths to which people went to ensure that they were well provided. And you mentioned that the ships were separated. What, what was the eventual fate of the people on these ships? Well, I mean, the story became a divided one. Um, Cabot had, you know, Sebastian Cabot, I should say, was the was the man who mounted the venture and organised it, but was himself quite elderly and didn't sail on it. He'd given them very strict instructions to stay together. There were three ships, but you know, much as you can instruct people to stay together, the the elements came came first, and there was a great storm off the Norwegian coast as they sailed as they sailed north, which blew them apart. Um, Sir Hugh Willoughby, who was in overall command of the venture, went one way, and the very talented young Bristol seaman Richard Chancellor, who was in charge of navigation and who was captaining another ship, went another way. While Richard Chancellor did manage to take down his mainsail and to remain in control and to navigate around the northern tip of Scandinavia, just as they'd planned, Willoughby and the two other ships were blown far to the north. Um, they tried to work out where they were, but of course they didn't. You know, they, they, the land, as they said, didn't lie, lie as the globe made mention. They were in an entirely unknown region, and for weeks they crisscrossed what's now known as the Barents Sea, beset by floating ice, unexpected shallows. Um, they explored remote islands, but they found no human life at all. And eventually, they put into a river estuary on the northern shore of the. Kola Peninsula. Um, men were sent out on long overland treks to look for help. But when they found no one, um, because by that time of year, the, the Sami population had moved south, they just decided to batten the hatches and see out the winter. And it was only months later that the ships were found by Russian fishermen, um, who also 
fortunately for us, found the log which Willoughby had kept, which allows us to recreate exactly what happened to them. Meanwhile, Richard Chancellor piloted his ship into the White Sea, where they anchored near to where Archangel now is. Um, local Russian communities sent word of their arrival to the ruler um, in distant Moscow. Tsar Ivan IV, who was later known, of course, as Ivan the Terrible, um, Chancellor and his leading merchants traveled by sled across hundreds of miles of Russian wilderness to visit the Russian capital, which then was entirely unknown to the English. They were welcomed. They were treated to a great feast with roast swan and vast quantities of alcohol. The contact Chancellor made led to the foundation of the first great English trading company, known as the Muscovy Company which acted as a model for many which came afterwards, most famously, of course, the East India Company. So Richard Chancellor, he, he made it to Russia, and, and I presume he made it back, did, back yes. alive. Um, but nobody at all then from Hugh Willoughby's ship did survive. They didn't, voyage. no. They were they were found in the following spring by a Russian by a small party of Russian fishermen, um, but all of the men on board had died. Do you see him in some ways as a bit of a Captain Scott figure? Well, I mean, there's no doubt at all that the voyage was one of triumph and disaster, and it's easy to be it's easy to be critical of him because he wasn't he wasn't a man like Richard Chancellor. He wasn't a man who understood the new sciences of of exploration and navigation on the seas. He he wasn't a man who understood mathematics or astronomy. Um, but at the same time, the vast majority of people who, who led voyages at sea in England at the time didn't. He was entirely typical of those who did. Um, it was Richard Chancellor who was the exception. But for that very reason, it's, it's Richard Chancellor who should be known much better than he is. Even despite Richard Chancellor's successes, they didn't find the North East Passage. Did, did anybody then find it later on? They kept looking. Um, there was a man who sailed with Richard Chancellor called Stephen Burrow, who, who sailed again a few years later. But, but no, he didn't. The, the simple fact is that in the 16th century, there wasn't a North East Passage to find. Um, there was too much ice. The conditions were just too difficult there was simply wasn't a way through. And it wasn't actually until the 19th century that anyone um, succeeded in sailing through the Northeast Passage. It's actually rather an interesting story because very recently, literally in the last month or so, a Chinese container ship has succeeded in sailing through the Northeast Passage, uh, the other direction, of course, which tells its own story. And, you know, climate scientists today debate how long it'll be before the Northeast Passage is an entirely viable route. And when it is, it, it genuinely will transform the pattern of global trade because it is it is quicker. I mean, I think it takes about two weeks off the, off the, the southern um, route, which is currently taken from China to Europe. So, you know, it will be a very, a very important moment. But the fact is that the Chinese container ship, which recently sailed, had to, had to sail in, in the company of an icebreaker. Um, it, you know, it isn't at the moment quite a viable route but people think it will be and when it is it will be a big moment what do you see as the main legacy of the 1553 voyage i mean it it was a success in the sense that richard chancellor did reach russia um the trade to russia was pursued for many decades there were items like train oil that is oil from seal blubber tallow rope all of which were shipped for sale in england over a long period of time the business wasn't vastly profitable in part because russia under ivan the terrible became a very dangerous and unstable place but but its long-term influence 
influence was incalculable, there's no doubt. From an economic point of view, the Muscovy company was a joint stock company in which investors could put up money, hoping to make a very substantial return without taking any active part in the business. Such an enterprise had never been mounted in England before, but they often were afterwards. And future trading ventures, including the East India Company, were organized along the same lines. It was also a period when a curiosity to learn about the world in a way which sounds modern, almost scientific, had come to the fore for the first time. And in the writing of men like Sebastian Cabot and Richard Chancellor, one can hear it very clearly. Learning about geography was a, perhaps peculiarly a, a very empirical pursuit. It was no coincidence that here, perhaps first of all, the authority of the ancient writers was questioned and cast off. They had said men could not pass through the equatorial regions, for instance, because of the extreme heat. But it wasn't true. They had not known about America. The simple fact was that if men wanted to discover, they realized that they had to go out and look for themselves. I think this was the, the new ethos which drove the 1553 voyage, and its importance scarcely needs emphasising. So, I mean, this is obviously a very interesting and quite an important story. Why do you feel it's not better? Well, I mean, it wasn't an immediate success. You know, it didn't directly produce a huge result simply because there wasn't in the 16th century, there was not a Northeast Passage. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, its influence was was vast. The other reason, I suppose, is that many of the voyages, many of the enterprises about which Richard Hacklett wrote, have been associated with the, the growth of the British Empire, with the early growth of empire. And there's certainly since the Second World War been quite a reaction against this. You know, it is no, there's no doubt that many of the stories that Richard Hacklett wrote about were once quite widely known. They were, you know, his volumes were in the library of Protestant gentlemen up and down, up and down the land, up and down the empire. But at the same time, there's no doubt at all in my mind that it is a story that is unduly neglected. It, it does deserve to be better known. Um, the instructions issued by Sebastian Cabot and the conduct of the voyage were very admirable. Um, they urged that foreign nations be treated, as Cabot wrote, with gentleness and courtesy. Um, they hoped that trade would lead towards a universal amity, as it was described. It sounds a little bit optimistic, but that is what was hoped. And its example, its importance were very substantial. So if it has been neglected, which it has been neglected, it shouldn't be. That was James Evans. Merchant Adventurers is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. So that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can also keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra and of course we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. Plus don't forget, we've got our special Christmas sale going on now for digital editions on the iPad, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. Find us at the newsstand and the App Store to take advantage of this deal before it expires on the 1st of January. Next week, we'll be kicking off the new year with a broadcast of one of the lectures from our History Weekend. So do make sure you join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and on location in Suffolk and produced by Jack Fletcher. 